Well, today we come to another remarkable chapter in the book of Daniel, which is really saying something, um, because just about every chapter in the book of Daniel is remarkable in one way or another. But whereas in the last chapter, I said it was very much uh, given to inspire hope for sinners, and especially for sinners who fear that they might be beyond the mercy of God. They have abused and rejected those mercies. I am too far gone now. We saw that it's not the case in the example of abundant mercy given to Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king. This week, however, although we will not be hopeless at the end of this sermon, hopefully not, yet this chapter is very much intended as a warning for the unconverted who reject the mercy of God. Whereas Nebuchadnezzar is shown mercy, his son, or rather his grandson, as we'll see, Belshazzar, is given judgment. Now again, as I said, this is not to take away the hope from sinners, but rather to urge them, to exhort them, to even plead with them. And if I can address you who are here unconverted, you children, I pray that you pay attention to this word. Do you know that I watch you sometimes during worship? I know from the back when you are not paying attention and when you're fooling around. I know when the word of God is going out and you are not listening. I pray you would listen to this sermon. Not because I am giving it, but because we could say your very soul is at stake in this message. I pray you would take heed lest you essentially hear the same words as Belshazzar, mene, mene, tekel, farsen. Your days have been numbered and are at an end. You have been weighed and found wanting, and now comes your judgment. Andrew Willett says, by these three words may be signified the last three things which come upon sinners, the remembrance of which will be most grievous unto them, death, final judgment, and hell. Those three things, death, final judgment, and hell, are what essentially are communicated in the words mene, tekel, and parson, and they all come upon Belshazzar in the blink of an eye. Moreover, what makes this particularly tragic, although the death of any human soul is, is tragic, anyone made in the image of God, what makes this so tragic said, on the one hand, well, I said of Nebuchadnezzar, if there was anyone who, if you were a betting, a betting man, you might say, that, that's the long odds right there, that that guy is going to come to the Lord. If there's a candidate not to get saved, it would have been Nebuchadnezzar. By contrast with Belshazzar, almost the opposite could have been said. You might say he had the benefits that Nebuchadnezzar didn't in many ways. He had seen his grandfather humbled and come to faith. He had read the proclamation of his grandfather's humbling by his grandfather's own hand. We saw five times, I, Nebuchadnezzar, he had certainly read that. He had been exposed to so much truth, and you might think, well, certainly. Having grown up in such a matter, he's a great candidate for salvation, and yet that's not what happens. So this chapter is a warning to all unconverted persons, but especially to those who have so much knowledge of the truth 
And again, I can't help but think of you children here today who have not yet trusted in Christ. Perhaps as Belshazzar had read and heard of the testimony of his grandfather, you have heard of the testimony of your parents. Maybe if they have recounted it to you. Perhaps like Nebuchadnezzar, your parents grew up not in a Christian home, maybe in a very dark place where there was much sin and lostness and just there was just no truth around. You've heard this, but you've been raised the opposite way. You've heard the word of God. You've had the gospel explained to you. I pray that you would not be as Belshazzar who hardened his heart and the judgment finally came upon him. Although this passage is a warning, we will see that even now there is still hope. Although there was no hope for for Belshazzar when those words were pronounced, it was coming, right? For you, the words have not been pronounced. We pray that you would take heed to this warning. Well, just as with last week, even more so, this chapter has a lot of things that need unpacking in it, explanation, and to some degree, defense from critics. One writer says, this chapter is notable for its historical inconsistencies. Well, tell me how you really feel. I agree rather with E.J. Young's assessment. We prefer to write this chapter is notable for its remarkable accuracies. And I believe that is true. And I think the more time goes on, the more we will just see the scripture confirmed again and again. So all that to say, while I do not apologize, nevertheless, I inform you. Keep tracking with me. You did a very good job last week. We will make, make it through it, um, and there will be application, okay? All right. Well, let's begin now in verse number one. It says, Belshazzar, the king, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles. He was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand, all right? Well, here we are introduced to a new king, Belshazzar, not to be confused with Daniel's Aramaic name, Belteshazzar. This is Belshazzar. Since he is a new king, we infer from this then that by this time, Nebuchadnezzar has died. Who was Belshazzar? He is said later on to be the son of Nebuchadnezzar, but this will require some explanation Indeed, when critics of the scriptures criticize this chapter, they really go after Belshazzar, or at least they used to. We'll see. For a long time, outside of scripture, outside of Daniel and those who commented on it, there were no other historical accounts that even mentioned a Belshazzar, and his mere existence was questioned entirely. He was considered to be a fictional character. However, As often happens, as Englishmen were digging in the desert several centuries ago, they found tablets. And guess who they mention? Belshazzar, who is said to be the son of the king. Let that encourage you. The more you, you you do not need to run from the truth, but be very open to it, and it will again and again confirm the scriptures. Nevertheless, that king that he was the son of was not Nebuchadnezzar, but King Nabonidus. Nabonidus. Now here we have to do a little bit of a timeline to put some things in order, so track with me. After Nebuchadnezzar died, he was first replaced by one of his sons named, uh, it's pronounced Evil Merodach. His name was not Merodach and he was really evil, okay? 
if we were to really say it, it would be Evil or Ewil. It means the man of Marduk. Marduk was one of their gods. That's what his name means. But Evil Merodach is mentioned in Scripture. And even here, I can't let pass by some very interesting, tantalizing historical things. So turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 52. Jeremiah 52. Normally, I cut out so many interesting things, but this one is just too interesting to pass by. Jeremiah 52, verses 31 through 34. 52, verses 31 through 34. It says, Now it came about in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, 25th day of the month, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the first year of his reign, showed favor to Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. Now, if Jehoiachin was taken captive around 597 BC, which is what I had proposed in our first sermon, then 37th, the 37th year of his captivity would have been around 560 BC, which is just around the time that Nebuchadnezzar reportedly died. That makes sense why it would be the first year that evil Merodach, his son, began to reign. His father had just died. He comes to the throne. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Evil Merodach is mentioned in other ancient records and is said to have been at odds with Nebuchadnezzar, his father. He's even said to have been imprisoned for a time, potentially in a failed coup. Now, that's interesting. One wonders... Did this happen during the period of Nebuchadnezzar's madness? Perhaps he tried to take over the throne. In that story, that movie I mentioned to you last week, The Madness of King George, uh, which again is not a family movie, okay? I'm just, just throwing, it's historical. It's a historical record, okay? Um, the Prince of Wales, who is the next in line to the throne of England, is jostling and politicking and, oh, my father's sick, and he's trying to at least get a regency where he's all but king in name, uh, and he fails because the king recovers. But what if something like that happened in this case, and he was imprisoned? What's interesting is that some suggest it was while he was imprisoned that he befriended and came to know King Jehoiachin, so that when he came to the throne, he released his friend from prison. It says, moving on in Jeremiah 52, that he spoke kindly to him and set his throne above the thrones of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin changed his prison clothes and had his meals in the king's presence regularly all the days of his life. For his allowance, a regular allowance, was given him by the king of Babylon, a daily portion all the days of his life until the day of his death. Again, I, can't, uh, I don't have a smoking gun, but some interesting possibilities there. Okay. Evil Merodach ruled after Nebuchadnezzar, his father, but he only ruled for about two years before he died. He was succeeded by a man named Nereglisar, who ruled a year and a half longer, about three and a half years. After Nereglisar died, he was succeeded by his son, Labashi Marduk, who was either a fool or very evil or both, and a coup took place to get him out of the throne. We are told in other uh, records, the one who was instrumental in that coup was a man named Belshazzar, 
who helped another man, Nabonidus, come to the throne. And Nabonidus was on the throne for 17 years, so there was finally some stability there. Now, depending on who you ask, either Nabonidus or Belshazzar was the last king of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. However, the truth is that they actually both were. They ruled together as what are called co-regents or co-kings, with the exception that Belshazzar was subordinate to Nabonidus. In fact, a group of ancient documents have been found called the Nabonidus Cylinders. If you remember, I said that uh, in the ancient Near East, they often recorded official documents on these clay cylinders. They would write on them in cuneiform, and they would dry them in the sun, and they, they hardened so much we can still read them today. But in these Nabonidus cylinders, there is this account called the verse account of Nabonidus. It says explicitly that when a Nabonidus was away on a military campaign, he, quote, entrusted the kingship to Belshazzar. So he ruled in his father's absence, and even to some degree when his father was not absent. There are other documents in which both are named where you might expect just one to be named. For example, oaths have been found where both are named together, and tribute is mentioned as being given to both. So they ruled as co-regents. Now, Belshazzar is called the son of the king. We don't know if he was the biological son of Nabonidus, but you need not be troubled by that. Ancient kings often chose their successors and legally adopted them, and they were called their sons. However, he may have actually been his son as well. Interestingly, this makes sense of why Belshazzar said that the one who can read and interpret the writing, quote, shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. The word for third there has been understood even from the times of Jerome as a peculiar word. It's not a normal ordinal number like first, second, third. Rather, it has more the concept of one of three. When Joseph interprets the dream for Pharaoh, he is made second. Here, however, because there are two kings, one uh, is superior to the other, two co-regents, Daniel, or whoever can read, is offered the third position in the kingdom. All right? Now, one last thing to mention here, and then we will move on, but it is kind of a big thing, is that this feast that is mentioned is also taking place on the night when Belshazzar is slain by his enemies and the night when the Medes and the Persians come to power. That's when it ends. Other Greek historical sources, namely Herodotus and Xenophon, tell us that the Medes and Persians by this point had already invaded Babylonian territory. They had beaten the Babylonian army. The Babylonians ran and fled back and holed up in the city of Babylon. These historians tell us that the night the city fell, the Persians diverted a waterway which went into the city. They were just able to walk in. But they both tell us that as this was happening, the Babylonians were celebrating a great feast. And Xenophon even tells us there was much revelry and drunkenness going on as this took place. So again, interesting things going on. You never perhaps read this and think, There's a Babylonian army besieging the city outside, but that is something going on in the context here. Okay, continuing on, verse 2. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, 
He gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. And they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. When it says that Belshazzar tasted the wine, that's a roundabout way of saying Belshazzar was feeling the wine. He was becoming intoxicated. And in such a state, he ordered that the vessel of the Lord's temple be brought that they might drink from them and praise their gods. I take his actions here to not be something that they were running out of cups, but to be an intentional, direct defiance and blasphemy against the God of the Jews. I can't help but wonder if he did this, even because the Persians are camped outside. I will still insult you. You will not bring me down. You will not humble me. Perhaps it was a way for him to distance himself from Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe it was an attempt to demonstrate to his nobles that his father's newfound religion had not rubbed off on him, but that he was a true bona fide Babylonian. Perhaps there had been murmurings, this is all coming upon us, you know, because your grandfather turned away from the gods of Babylon and started worshiping this god of the Jews. If only we had been faithful, this would never happen. Perhaps this is a Hail Mary, so to speak, for him to show his allegiance to those gods by disrespecting and disavowing the god of his grandfather. Either way, the fact that he did this when he was drunk makes me think there was still some trepidation in him. Alcohol is called liquid courage, and you wonder, did he need a little liquid courage, a little liquid bold folly before he was able to do this? He had grown up and heard the stories about this God of the Jews, their wise men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He had heard, perhaps seen from himself, what had happened to his grandfather. Perhaps in order to do such a bold thing, he must first have a few drinks. Either way, what he does is the wickedest of all those Babylonian kings. Andrew Willett says, In his presumption, he ventures to do that which neither Nebuchadnezzar nor his father before him attempted. For none of them brought these sacred vessels or turned them to common use, which were consecrated and dedicated only to the service of God. But the greatest impiety of all was that they praised their abominable idols. Or perhaps they drank from them. They waited. No one was struck dead. They drank again. They looked around. Nothing happened. They sang a song. They praised the the gods of gold. Nothing happened. All the way down onto the way of the gods of stone. And they laughed. Oh, that God of the Jews. He is surely afraid to mess with the God of the Babylonians until the God of the Jews showed up. It's all fun and games until God shows up. Verse 5. Suddenly. Fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing, and the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. 
his boasting quickly turns into absolute terror. I think this is not just because he saw a floating hand. If we saw a floating hand right now, you guys would be running out that door, and I would probably be pushing little children out of my way to get out of that door, okay? I don't just think that's the reason. I think it's because he has some suspicions. The God I just blasphemed has showed up. This was the God of the Jews he had heard about, and he just blasphemed him. Andrew Willis says, Belshazzar understood not the meaning of the writing, yet he trembled and feared, expecting some present judgment because his own conscience accused him. Verse 7, the king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans and the diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. And all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Now notice, it doesn't just say they couldn't interpret it, but neither could they read it. I don't exactly know why this is, and I don't really want to get into the weeds of all the options. I think Willett is probably correct, and Calvin and Paulinus uh, agree with him in this. He said, it is most probable that this writing was written in some strange and unknown characters unto the Chaldeans, or rather, which is most likely, they were so blinded and astonished by the power of God that they could not read it. Well, verse 9 says, then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. You know, if they could read it, that's a great sign this is not the God of the Jews, because was ever the God of the Jews, they always fail, but they fail again. Ooh, this is really starting to sound similar to all the other stories he has heard before. He's greatly alarmed. Verse 10, the queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. The queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be now, this queen is most likely not his wife, since she was not in the banquet hall, whereas verse 1 tells us he was with his wives and his concubines in the beginning. Rather, she is probably what we might call a queen mother. And in fact, she may have been the wife of Nabonidus. Herodotus tells, her, tells us that her name was Nitocris, and that she was the wife of Nabonidus, which would make her the mother of Belshazzar, that perhaps she was a daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, meaning that Belshazzar was Nebuchadnezzar's grandson by his mother, potentially. Okay? She says in verse 11, There is a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods, or again, as I said last week, the holy God. And in the days of your father, now I know I just said Nebuchadnezzar was probably his grandfather. Don't be troubled by that. The term father, especially in the ancient world, was used a lot more loosely. It could refer to an ancestor. The Jews tell Jesus, Abraham is our father, right? They used it more fluidly than we do today. She says, in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners, 
This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Now I have heard about you, that a spirit of the gods is in you, and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me, that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you, that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now if you are able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom." Verse 17, then Daniel answered and said before the king, keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to to him. Daniel, by this time, is a much older man. You could almost see him talking to this younger king. You could almost add the word sonny here. That's what I think of. Keep your gifts for yourself, sonny. I'm not interested in that stuff. Nevertheless, I will read it all the same. Verse 18. O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed upon him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed. And whomever he wished, he spared alive. Whomever he wished, he elevated And whomever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind and his heart was made like that of of beasts. And his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized The Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind, and that he sets it over whomever he wishes. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before you. And you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand, but the God in whose hand are your life breath and your ways you have not glorified. And the hand was sent from him, and this inscription was written out. Key verse to note in all of that is verse 22. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. Nebuchadnezzar had indeed in his day been a very wicked and vain man, and he was himself several times exposed to the truth of God and still did not humble himself for a time. And yet Belshazzar 
had the advantage of even knowing of the humbling of the great king, but still not repented. He had read the words of the decree of his grandfather. He had read the words that the Most High is able to humble those who walk in pride. He had seen the Most High do it, and yet he continued on in pride. To whom more knowledge is given, more is required, and therefore greater is their sin and their judgment. This is why Christ said that a greater punishment was to come upon cities of his own fellow Jews than upon those of wicked pagan Gentiles. While the pagan Gentiles were indeed guilty of all sorts of evil sins, yet the Messiah himself had come to these good, buttoned-down Jewish towns and rejected him. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. That's a remarkable statement to make. Imagine how shocked and scandalized the Jews of Christ's day would have been by it. Those cities, especially Sodom and Gomorrah, were cities of great debauchery, murder, all kinds of horrible things. He says they are going to have it easier in the day of judgment than these towns of quote-unquote religious Jews. That would be like saying San Francisco is going to have it better in the day of the judgment than Fort Worth. To be sure, Fort Worth is no angel city. We are no um, bright, you know, shining mountain on a, or whatever on a hill or something like that, right? It would be like saying that. And yet this was the case with those cities because they had a greater knowledge greater exposure to the truth. Truth himself had come to them, and they rejected him. And for that reason, their judgment was greater. For those of you here who are not yet believers, even some of you still not listening as I speak, in many ways you may be less sinful than others who do not go to church. Compared to those who do not read the Bible, you're looking pretty good. Perhaps you might look at their lives. Their lives are full of sin. They live like fools. They're full of all these addictions. They live in great darkness. You look at them and say, I am at least not as bad as them. And yet in another respect, you are worse. Because you have been raised hearing the word of God. You hear it week after week. You've been exposed to so much truth. They live in darkness. They shall indeed give an account for their sins. You live in the light much more than they do. The judgment shall be worse. And I pray that you would repent and believe in Christ today. Because with each passing day, each passing Sunday, as your knowledge increases, so does the guilt and punishment. Daniel continues in verse 25. Now this is the interpretation that was written out. Mene, mene. This is the interpretation of the passage. Mene. 
God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. To number something is to put an end to it. Uh, If you can number it, uh, if it is made of numbers, it is made of parts, right, we could say. Uh, It is finite indeed. The psalmist says in Psalm 39.4, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent, the number of my days. His end has come upon him. Mene is said here twice. Mene, mene. This happens often in Scripture for rhetorical emphasis. When something big is about to be pronounced, particularly a woe or a great truth, the first two words are often repeated. Isaiah says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon. Or Christ, when he is about to say say some great truth, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, here, Mene, mene gives emphasis to the whole statement, not just the word mene. Verse 27, tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. The idea here is of a judgment by a metaphor of scales. On the one hand is the weighty justice, the righteousness of God, the law of God. On the other hand, is man. Does he balance out? Does he meet the requirements of the law? If he does, they will come to a balance. What is said of Belshazzar? He has been found wanting. He goes up. The psalmist says in 62, nine, uh, Psalm 62.9, men of low degree are only vanity and men of rank are a lie. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than breath. Here, Belshazzar has gone way up because the righteousness of God was not found in him. Verse 28, Peres, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. Judgment, which is exactly what happens. Verse 29 says, then Belshazzar gave orders and they clothed Daniel with purple put a necklace of gold around his neck, and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Well, though we have been doing this along the way, let us now consider this three-word warning and put it before us all here today who have yet to repent and believe. To you also, the word of God, in effect, pronounces, Mene, Mene. Your days are numbered. One day shall be your end. Did you know each of us have a definite number of how many days we shall live? I googled this the other day. I think I'm about 13,000 at this point. To be about 90 is about 36. There is a definite number. You don't know what it is. It was decreed before the world was founded. You will have an end one day. Now, I've never met an unbeliever in evangelism who believes that they shall continue on forever and ever and never experience physical death. And yet by their actions, specifically by their unrepentance, they essentially communicate as much. They continue on day after day 
without any thought for the fact that their death shall one day come upon them. They shall die and be in a casket, in a sitting, a setting very similar to this. A man will stand up and eulogize. They will be right there. That's going to happen to all of us. In many ways, our society today, either intentionally on the one hand, tries to put death out of its mind as much as possible, even in its vocabulary. We talk about a celebration of life, not a funeral. Even unintentionally, we are just so far removed from death. In the ancient world, death was all around you, not just in terms of the mortality rate, but if a family member died, you didn't call the coroner. You and your family were the ones who washed, prepared the body. You buried the body. You yourself handled this dead person. So, so far is that from us today. We don't think about it. It almost leaves the impression it's some sort of a freak occurrence. We know it happens. It's kind of like car accidents. We know they happen. Sometimes we drive by them. And yet we're driving, flying down the road on our phones like, well, i got to really text this real quick right now. Because that, that happens out there somewhere. That doesn't happen to me. That's often how we think of death. It's interesting. Jason and I, when we went to North Carolina for the CBA meeting, the church where it was held had a large cemetery on its grounds. And it had a very subtle but remarkable effect every day. As we pulled into the parking lot, it didn't like break our joy and we were like, you know, somberly walking in. But it was amazing to think that those church members, every day as they come to hear the word of the Lord, pass by graves as they walk in. Perhaps there are sinners who still have not yet repented. They hear a sermon like this, they walk to their car, and there are headstones confronting them. Death shall come upon you soon. How sobering that must be. According to Scripture, unbelievers and believers alike would do well to contemplate their end and their death. This is something that the godly and the wise do. It's not a gloomy thing. It's not a goth thing. I've seen gothic kids, they would go to cemeteries and take pictures in front of headstones, and they're like, look at me. I don't run. That's, that's not what it means at all. You're not that cool, okay? Psalm 90, verse 12. Teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. The fool never numbers his days. Psalm 39, 4 through 5. Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths. My lifetime is nothing in your sight. Surely every man at best is a mere breath. Oh, consider your end. Especially you children. Because your end seems so far away. In many ways it is, Lord willing. I am going to be 40 soon. I received an invitation for my almost 20-year high school reunion the other day. And I thought, whoa, imagine what Jason feels like, you guys. Your end will come. It will. It seems like it's so far away. The other thing is you don't know that you'll live long as Jason does. <laughs> we are not all promised that. You could live 36 years. 
or 36 months, or 36 days, or 36 hours, and some only live 36 minutes. Your day is numbered. I pray you would contemplate your end. Next, Scripture also tells you that you too have been weighed and found wanting. There is nothing in you. You don't even make the scale come up, even the slightest bit. There's no tension in the balance. You are full all of sin. There is no righteousness in you at all if you are unrepentant. On the one side is the perfect law of God. On the other is you. I pray that just as you consider your end, you would meditate on the standard of judgment. It is perfection. You cannot, or you could fulfill all the law and yet be missing in just one point, and judgment would still come upon you. Heed the the wise words of Charles Spurgeon. He says, ah, my friend, if you would take the trouble just to sit down and weigh yourself in the scales of the law, if you would take just one command, the one in which you think yourself the least guilty, the one that you imagine to have kept best, and look really at its intent and spirit and view it in all its length and breadth and truth, I know you would say, alas, when I hope to have gone down with the sound of congratulation, I find myself hurled up light as the dust of the balance. Remember, the law of God is spiritual. It does not merely call for some kind of appearance of obedience. Obedience, rather, is from the heart, and it happens in the mind. So often, we look only at the outside, and many people do this and are so deceived. I've met people who say, and I'm just so astounded by it. I, I say, do you, I, I'll say, what does God require of us? I'll say, I don't know, to love him and love others. And I'm like, you are more right than you know. I'll say, are you doing that? And they go, I think I'm doing that. <laughs> I just go, what are you talking about? You've not considered the law. It requires heart obedience, not mere external obedience, not mere words. The rich young ruler only looked at the outside. He genuinely thought he had fulfilled the law. He said, teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may attain eternal life? He said to him, why are you asking me what is good? There is only one who is good, but if you wish to enter eternal life, keep the commandments. He said, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? And it's getting really close, Jesus. I just need a couple more things, and I'm going to balance out perfectly with the law of God. But Jesus intentionally left out one commandment that pertains especially to the heart. You shall not covet. That's what the man did not even notice, did not even mention that Jesus missed. Christ says, if you wish to be complete, you wish to match the law of God in the balances, Go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he, for he owned much property. 
Oh, he saw so much more the breadth and the size of the law. God does not just weigh actions, but he weighs hearts. Proverbs 16, 2. All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. Proverbs 21, 2. Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. You see, not only was the rich young ruler guilty of covetousness, but of breaking all the other commandments, even though he thought he kept them. Even those which he thought were clean in his heart. They were wrong, because they did not come from a heart purified by faith and with a desire to glorify God. You know, the balance in scales are a very interesting picture and metaphor for justice. This is why you often see Lady Justice. She's holding uh, a pair of scales in her hands. And the reason is because it gets to the heart of true justice. What I mean by that is while something might look like precious metal on the outside, yet so often the true test is how much it weighs. Indeed, even today, this is often the dead giveaway for counterfeit coins. On the outside, perhaps, they have been plated with silver or gold or a precious metal. On the inside, lead, nickel, copper. Those kinds of coins, I'm going to butcher the French, but that's okay, are called fourets. It's French for stuffed. They have a nice-looking exterior, but they are stuffed inside with cheap metal, and so many on the outside look good and are dead on the inside. As Christ said to the Pharisees, you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Take heed. You can fool everyone but God. You can fool your parents. You can fool your spouse. You can fool your pastor and the whole church and everyone else because they can only see the exterior. But God weighs the heart and he shall not be fooled. Lastly, for those who do not repent, and even for those who only give fake repentance, Peres comes. They shall be divided. They shall be cast in hell with Satan and his demons, and the physical torment will be nothing compared to the anguish of their souls. As for all eternity, these words ring out again and again in their conscience. Mene, mene tekelfarsen, I was numbered, I was weighed, I am divided. I pray that that would be no one here today. That is currently you, and you wish to avoid that. Look to Christ. Look to Christ now. For the sake of sinners, Christ's days on this earth were numbered. And he came to the end of death on a cross. In fact, this death was not because he was a sinner. No, he had been weighed and found not wanting at all. But he bore the debt and the sin and guilt of sinners. Christ himself perfectly fulfilled the law. When placed on the balance, he was not wanting. Perfectly, it balanced out. He did not miss the minutest. The most inward part of the law was all fulfilled. 
Yet he bore the death of sinners. He bore the death of counterfeits, that they might be made genuine. Furthermore, not only does he rescue from death, from the end, the number of days, but he gives life through the gift of righteousness. Theologians say that in our justification, when we are rendered righteous in Christ, we are given what is called a jus ad vitam, or a jus vitae, which is Latin for the right, or a deed, you could say, to life. A right and title is given to you. As Paul says, as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you are an unbeliever here today, if you go into the scales of God's judgment compared to the law, you will go up and up until you fall down and down into hell. Today, however, as a free gift, Christ offers you his righteousness, which shall fully satisfy all the demands of the law. We sang a hymn a moment earlier, which says that the law says this is enough, or something to that degree. Christ's righteousness fully, fully fulfills it. There is no way in which it can be said, you have been found wanting. You shall be rendered fully righteous as his righteousness is imputed to you. You will be looked upon as though you fully fulfilled the law in all of its minutest detail, and therefore eternal life shall be granted to you. Not judgment, but eternal life. I pray you would receive this gift by faith. Come to him now this moment, this afternoon. He calls you. If Belshazzar could say anything, he would warn you, don't join me here. As the rich man said to Father Abraham, I beg you, Father, that you send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have fine brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Belshazzar would say, don't come here. This is horrible, and your judgment will be worse than mine. As you have heard of the Christ, he came after you, 2,000 years after you. You have the full written word of God, power of the new covenant. Oh, how much greater is the condemnation of those who reject such a powerful truth. But if you come to Christ today, if you come to him, though one day your days on this earth shall come to an end, you shall be resurrected and go on to eternal life. And when you stand and are weighed in the judgment seat, before the judgment seat of God, you shall be declared righteous for the sake of Christ's righteousness. And you shall not be divided, but you shall go on for all eternity, day after day, year after year, eon after eon, only getting better and better. No longer wait. Come today. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. We commit all the souls here today, Lord, to you and to your spirit now, who is the only one who can unlock hearts. Pray that you help us to take heed from this. We pray all these things in the name of Christ.